Good afternoon and welcome to the 186th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of COVID-19 testing with Shobita Parthasarathi. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 11th, 2020, there are 1,589,532 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 15,721,790 cases reported in the United States, and there are now a total of 293,633 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 291,307 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Hull woman dies after three negative COVID-19 tests. This appeared in BBC News July 22nd. Julie Taylor Broadbent from Hull died in the hospital on the 8th of May, four days before her 50th birthday. Her family said they had no confidence in the swab test system and called for a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. The Department of Health and Social Care, DHSC, said its testing scheme was reliable and effective. The 49-year-old had been admitted to the hospital with a burst ulcer on the 4th of May, but her condition worsened and she was given oxygen therapy as she had trouble breathing, her family said. The following day, while in the hospital, she had her first coronavirus test, which came out negative. Because she was still presenting with potential virus symptoms, she had two further tests in the hospital on the 6th and 7th of May that each returned negative results. Jane Taylor Broadbent, 54, said her wife's death was testament that the swab tests were not working. Three tests and she's not here. She tested negative three times, she said. The doctor explained that while she had been displaying COVID-19 symptoms, her results were consistently showing as negative. I want honest answers. I want to know why Julie died. We're getting no answers from the government, really, Mrs. Taylor Broadbent said. The DHSC said all swab tests were assessed as performing to the manufacturer's specifications prior to being deployed, but there was a small possibility of a false negative or a false positive resulting like any diagnostic test. Quote, testing is reliable and effective. An NHS test and trace has already helped isolate more than 180,000 cases, with no significant rise in cases since the country started emerging from lockdown, unquote, a spokesman said. Julie's daughter, Emma Smith, 26, said she found the response from the DHSC describing the tests as reliable and effective, really insulting, actually. The widow said she was campaigning for an independent public in inquiry to put things right, and have measures in place, so if we do get hit by a second wave, we're in a lot better position. 
Miss Smith continued, I would like them to see what they've done, see how much hurt they've caused and sort it out, quite frankly. The DHSC added, every death from this virus is a tragedy, and our deepest sympathies go out to everyone who has lost loved ones. I'd like to read a second obituary today. The headline, but the second one is, Detroit healthcare worker dies after being denied coronavirus test four times, the daughter says. It's appeared in NBC News April 25th by Janelle Griffith. Deborah Gatewood had two years to go before she could retire from the Detroit hospital. But Gatewood, a phlebotomist for three decades, will never celebrate that milestone. She died April 17th from symptoms related to the coronavirus. Her daughter said that prior to her mother's death, she was denied a coronavirus test four times by her employer, Beaumont Hospital, Farmington Hills. Hospitals and states across the county have reported a shortage of swabs and other supplies needed for coronavirus testing kits, as well as delays in securing test results at that time. Kayla Carruthers said her mother started experiencing symptoms in mid-March. Gatewood, 63, drove herself to the hospital's emergency room in Farmington Hills on March 18th, where she requested a test and was sent home. They said she wasn't as severe enough and that they weren't going to test her, said Carruthers, Gatewood's only child. They told her to just go home and rest. Gatewood went back to the hospital March 19th, by which time she had developed a cough, her daughter said. So they gave her a prescription for cough medicine, Carruthers said in a phone interview. Her mother's symptoms worsened. Gatewood drove to the hospital again, March 21st, because her fever had spiked, Carruthers said. On that visit, she said her mother was told that she most likely had COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus, but was still not tested. Gatewood went to the hospital for the last time, March 23rd. On March 27th, Carruthers went to her mother's house and found her in bed. She was not responding when Carruthers called her name, so she decided to take her mother, who had lost her appetite, to another hospital. My husband and I got her ready, Carruthers said. It was taking her a long time to catch her breath to take any steps. As they approached the door to leave, Gatewood collapsed. Her eyes kind of rolled back, Carruthers said. She was unresponsive. We got her back to the bed and laid her down. Gatewood was taken by ambulance to Sinai Grace Hospital, where she was tested for the coronavirus. She had a fever of 106 degrees. She had developed bilateral pneumonia and was intubated for more than two weeks, her daughter said. Gatewood's kidneys began to fail, then her heart on April 17th, she was declared dead. Carruthers said what bothers her most is that her mother was not treated well at the hospital where she had worked for 31 years. She hopes that people do not get discouraged from seeking help the way her mother did after being turned away multiple times. If people feel symptoms, go to the doctor. You're the only person who knows how you feel, Carruthers said. If you can't get treated at one hospital, go to another. When she thinks of her mother, Carruthers said there is one thought that lingers. This did not have to happen this way. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation and let me introduce my guest today. Shobita Parthasarathy is Professor of Public Policy and Director of Science, Technology and Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Her research specializes in the governance of emerging science and technology and the politics of evidence and expertise in policymaking in comparative and international perspective. She's the author of two books, Patent Politics, Life Forms, Life Forms, Markets, and the Public Interest in the United States and Europe that appeared with Chicago Press in 2017, and Building Genetic Medicine, Breast Cancer Technology and the Comparative Politics of Healthcare that appeared with MIT Press in 2007. She's currently working on two projects, 
The first examines the politics of inclusive innovation in international development, and the second compares COVID-19 responses, particularly relating to diagnostic testing in the United States, United Kingdom, Singapore, and South Korea. Shobita Parthasarapi, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much, Scott. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, let's start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is is affecting you there today. Yeah, so it's uh, I'm calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, where, like most of the country, we're experiencing uh, a spike in, in our COVID cases. We have uh, what our governor has now renamed, I guess, a pause. Uh, I think, you know, the framing is interesting, but so we had a pause that was supposed to pause on things like indoor dining, high school in, you know, in-person high school, et cetera, um, that was supposed to expire December 8th. It's now been extended for I think two to three more weeks. Um, so, you know, things aren't great. Although I will also say that I went, um, I was out and about a little bit today and, um, and it was a bit terrifying to see how crowded it was. Um, so uh, how much that pause is being really, um, is really shaping behavior and activity around the, uh, around at least my community, which my community tends to be, um, uh, be more um, uh, open and, and supportive of the, the governor's order. So, so we'll see uh, what, that, what that bodes for the case numbers. Michigan has really been at the center of the pandemic politics this year. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess, you know, as a state that has uh, uh, urban centers, rural areas, it has uh, college towns, industrial spaces, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a microcosm of the rest of the country. Um, I want to get your thoughts a little bit about that. Just have you been surprised by the vitriol? I mean, a plot on the governor's life and, and those things that ordinarily would feel like something out of a, out of a movie or something. They've been on your doorstep this year. They have been, and it is, it's, it's both horrifying and a bit distressing at how we've kind of moved on and not, you know, that is not uh, the subject of front page news um, constantly. You know, I, 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 I don't think we know the details of, of that plot and we're not talking about it in the way that I think we should be. Um, and, and I think it's worth noting that that plot, of course, came after the famous scenes in our state legislature where people were protesting uh, with guns. Uh, we've had multiple lawsuits in the state um, against a number of the, of, of the governor's stay-at-home orders. So it has been, and of course, let me, you know, I think that into this soup, uh, you have to include also all of the protests after the election and the spectacle at, in Detroit. Um, as someone who was a poll worker herself, I, I had even more, I think, um, empathy for the folks who were trying to just count votes in the TCF mm -hmm. Center in Detroit. And the kind of, um, you know, the, the implicit message in a lot of this has been I think that for some of the folks who are in the rural areas, that this is not a rural problem, certainly in the beginning, that was the framing. This is not a rural problem. This is a problem in Detroit. Um, and of course, it's right. essentially exactly what then also came up again with the, um, uh, with the election, not surprisingly, right? So trying to create that when, of course, that's not at all the case. And 
And, you know, some of our northern Michigan counties have are beyond the breaking point in terms of um, ICU bed capacity. So so it's definitely not that. But but that's the framing of the debate, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in Michigan. And and it has, um, you know, we've become inured to that kind of polarization, which I think is really unfortunate. Yeah, thank you for that. And particularly that sort of caution that we kind of have to remind ourselves once in a while, like this, not only is this not normal, but it shouldn't be. I mean, the numbers of norms that are being trans, there's a reason those norms are norms Uh, in a democracy, in a functioning democracy, albeit an imperfect one. You've been so busy in this time and I wanna just actually start, we have a lot to cover, but I wanna actually start, you have a piece um, in Nature and the title is uh, more testing alone will not get us out of the pandemic. And I just want to give one line from this piece. Everybody should check this out. Um, and you say, after decades of discrimination and mistreatment, communities of color are rational and hesitating to get tested, provide personal information to contact tracers or download a tracing app. That's just one little piece of what you're talking about here in this, in this article. But I, you know, it's a, it's a nice, a concise correction for the idea that testing is the techno fix that will deliver us out of this mess. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that then lays the groundwork for lots of the other themes we want to touch on today. Yeah, I mean, so much of how this project has evolved has really been around technology and equity and testing and equity. And, and I think that we, there are a couple of things that I think are important here. One is that we tend to think about whatever it is, insert the techno fix here, whether it's testing, contact tracing, or the vaccine, we think that somehow having more of it um, will somehow fix our problem. And, And what's interesting about this to me is that I remember when I was just a graduate student and starting my uh, research on my first book, which is about genetic testing for breast cancer. And to be honest, in March-ish, it's, it was that that made me think, you know, I think I have an understanding of testing. Okay, yes, we were talking then about genetic testing. This is a different kind of testing. But what I remember struck me then was how genetic testing for breast cancer almost uh, stood in for treatment. It was sort of characterized as though if only you knew your risk of breast cancer, somehow that was going to um, mm-hmm. solve the problem. And... I think that we, especially because in the U.S. at the beginning, there was this feeling of such scarcity and that exacerbated, I think, that that approach, this idea that, oh, my God, we don't have access to this and this could solve our problem. Uh, And so that framing has continued ever since. And that framing is problematic, I think, for a couple of reasons. The first is that, of course, you know, and you were mentioning this in one of the obituaries, in the UK, the even the framing, now they are, they're no great shakes either, <laughs> right? There have been serious problems in the UK, which we've been tracking in our research, but they call it test, trace, isolate. That's what they call it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't call it that here. We are just like freaking out because we don't have access to testing. So without tracing, without isolation, testing has limited importance. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is in some ways kind of going back on what what that what I said, which is one of the things that I've really started to think about is how testing perform, you know, I keep talking about we and t- 
testing performs different functions for different people. And that's another thing that we don't, we haven't been thinking about enough. I think that when I think about testing now and the we and the testing, you know, we also, we often talk about, I can, I can speak for myself. All right. I was originally thinking that I might be able to go home for the holidays and, and my strategy sent was centrally about, okay, I'll take a test before I leave. I'll take a, take a test when I get back. It's an enabling device, right? right. Um, it's an enabling device for, for lots of people who want to travel, who want to go to school. Um, it's an enabling device for universities. Um, it's a surveillance device for others, right? For public health professionals, for city and state department, state public health departments. It serves a different function. They're less interested in the individual. They're interested in the aggregate. So they're less interested in questions around error, sensitivity, and specificities of the tests, right? There are also folks for whom, and that's, you know, that quote that you read, and these are things we're really disaggregating now because I think that there's a lot of it, but, um, or a lot of different ways you could understand this. But I think that for essential workers, for example, uh, for marginalized communities of color, tests are neither enabling, um, nor are they sort of a benign form of data collection. They're potentially, they're sort of, you know, potentially problematic forms of surveillance uh, that, if they were found to be positive, they could either not have the resources to isolate, not have the resources to take care of um, themselves if they're forced to not go to work, right? These are devices that can um, massively constrain their lives and actually even devastate their lives, right? So the relationship that they might have with testing is different. And um, they may not even have the, um, the resources to, you know, there are all of these these assumptions embedded in um, the testing systems too, that some of the folks that we're talking about may not even have those resources. So in a lot of cases, for example, you know, in order to get the notification, you need uh, a cell phone, you need a smartphone, you need, sure. right? The, all of those sorts of things. So, so I think- Sorry, you but, should. But, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm learning a lot. I, I mean, I was just to say, potentially an address. I mean, there's other things right, you might have right. to, to give up that might immediately put you at risk, or that you just don't have. And I, and I was, and I'll just end by saying that piece came out of that frustration that we were to use in the lingo of our field, black boxing the test, mm -hmm. acting mm -hmm. as though it was very simple and we just needed more of it. And in the process of doing that, and here's really where my problem lies, in the process of doing that, we are putting so much into it and we're losing nuance that can actually help us fight the pandemic and address the problems at stake. And that's uh, what I have been very concerned about, that we're not, um, by not understanding these technologies as meaning different things to different people, as tied to different kinds of social systems, uh, we're limiting ourselves uh, in terms of our opportunities to fight the pandemic. That disaggregation of what that test means to different people and being um, cognizant of the pronoun there, you know, not talk about a, a we as if there's some national we around test is really important. And I don't think I've heard anybody state it as clearly as you did just now. I want to linger on that enabling part for a second. Because there's a phenomenon there that I think probably many of us have, and maybe individually we've participated in this or we know those who have people who say i got tested and so now i feel comfortable doing x um, but of course the tests if you take a little time to learn about them and we maybe we'll talk about different sensitivity of different ones but um, 
unless you're sort of undergoing continual testing, the way this virus works, you can be, you can have no, you can be asymptomatic for several days before manifest itself. And so you're spreading it. And that was one of the early findings, medical findings that I think was deeply distressing to the medical community for this particular virus. So I wanted to just maybe just pick on that piece, which is, there's a sort of a psychological issue here, I guess, in part. Why is it okay for people to feel like, I'm gonna get the test and then that somehow, now they have carte blanche to go ahead and do what they need to do. I've had so many people tell me that. And I've read so many stories about that. And then they go on and they get sick. And then they don't know where they got it or how they got sick, because oh, I got a test, right? Yeah. And, and these are, I mean, there are, I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but I do think that we don't talk enough, or we're not comfortable enough with uncertainty. Uh, and, and that plays all kinds of roles, obviously, in this pandemic. I think that we, we need to think as societies about how do we manage uncertainty better um, around all sorts of things, but how scientists can communicate that kind of uncertainty because, because you're exactly, exactly right. I mean, I'll, I, just a few weeks ago, Elon Musk famously was tweeting about how I got two tests and it didn't, you know, I said it was, I don't remember what the, what the exact progression was, but it was, you know, some negative, some positive. And that's a common experience. If you have the resources uh, to get multiple tests, I have to remind you, right? So there's a certain privilege in the, oh, I'm just going to get lots of tests and then it, um, but, um, uh, but it would be so much better if we said, listen, and, and I think, by the way, you know, I, I, I heard something this morning that, that made me think this is the same thing all over again, which is that people were talking about the vaccine and they said, we don't yet know are people are going to be communicable? What does it mean to have the vaccine and then be exposed? People are still going to have to wear masks and socially distance. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just also like everybody else learning about the vaccine. So I don't know about the technical details in the way that I know about the tests, but you know, we, we, which is sort of understandable. We want to be out and about. I really want to be out and about, but the more we put into that, positive or negative test result, the less we think about the isolation part, which is, you know, listen, we just, we, we, if we isolated ourselves for an X period of time, that would bring the numbers down to a manageable level. Um, and, right. and yet we keep saying, no, 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 let's, uh, let's put the burden onto the test should be able to tell us something. Uh, because everybody says it can tell us something, just like the vaccine um, should be able to solve our problem, because that's what everybody's telling us. And I think, you know, it just makes me wonder that those of us who are in these positions and talking to more public audiences, what does that mean for how we talk about the issue? Um, you know, and what does it mean for scientists and, and physicians? Is there a way, what are the ways that we can um, uh dislodge the idea of the techno fix because that's that that you you know i mean i think this is a, a clear issue of right. how problematic it can be well even as you were saying a moment ago that that you know the messaging in the uk was test trace and isolate right um which implies all kinds of supports and other knowledge um and a process which presumably the government would help supervise and provide support for 
And, and so you don't have to go too far with this if you bother to, to look into it, to know that that test also to me is yet another example of pushing risk onto the individual rather than understanding it as a community-based problem that requires community-based solutions, much of which will need the supervision of government in order to organize. So here you have yet another example where we've been told that the lone individual can take their health care into their hands. And I, I, I've always, I don't know why I continue to be surprised by that, but here we have manifest yet again that, that message in the United States. You know, so I asked my um, student research assistants to put together flowcharts for the four countries that we're studying. Um, and I actually started with the other three countries. Um, I started with South Korea because I thought that would be the simplest. Uh, and we've now done Singapore and we're, you know, we're working on Singapore and, and the UK. And as I've been looking at their work, they've drawn these beautiful flowcharts, sort of if you're symptomatic, here's the trajectory, if you're asymptomatic, if you're in a care home. And what struck me about those was both the relative simplicity, the fact that it could be captured in a flowchart. I mean, there was some complexity that they're trying to harness um, in, a, in two to three pages, but, um, but you could actually capture this and you knew where to go and what to do. If you were a symptomatic person, you go, you know, in the UK case, you go to a portal, if you go through the hospital, right? So there's, there's, there's a clear flowchart. Um, we haven't started on the US, which is probably the uh, case I know the best because there's no, uh, there's no flow, <laughs> right? right? I mean, there's just, right. um, it's a free for all. Uh, and, um, we've been trying to get a harness, you know, to sort of harness that for months. And, you know, we've, we've figured out some parts of it, um, enough of it, but, but definitely it's every person for themselves. And, you know, to go back to what I was saying earlier in an, in a system where every person is, has to fend for themselves, that is where inequality rears, clearly rears its head. Right. Um, that's not to say that there aren't inequalities in those other countries. And certainly Singapore is an object lesson in how, um, you know, you create a national system and then, oops, you forgot that there were migrant workers. Right. So, right. Right. I mean, I'm not suggesting that these aren't places that are suffering from the same things, but that kind of literally survival of the fittest approach that we have to our healthcare system uh, is definitely part of, of, why we're we're struggling so much. I mean, there's just so much. And and of course, the proponents would say this is this is, you know, there are people who benefit from this free market. This is, you know, we have many more tests. You have access to much more testing. You don't have to worry about the gatekeeper of the physician. You don't have to, you know, it's 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 wide open and so you can um, you can you have freedom. To put it in, you know, terms of the 20th, 21st century anti-mask brigade, but um, but with the price we're paying for that freedom is a is a disease that we can't suppress.
just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking today about testing and science and politics with Shobita Parthasarathy. And I want to um, actually, so we've mentioned it a, a few times. I want to give you a chance to maybe go back and say a little bit more about this NSF study, understanding the comparative politics of COVID-19 testing. One of my frustrations, uh, and it's not just me, with the way the pandemic is analyzed is that it's a series of national stories. We get sucked into the graphics, we get sucked into the globe that shows us that the definition of the pandemic pushes back against that. That's a tension, I guess, always when we talk about globalization and disaster and pandemics. Um, but you've set out to try to address that and correct that in the design of this study. You just gave us a little bit of a, of a fascinating detail about Singapore. And, and I've had Sulfakar Amir on and also Hallam Jones, to, Hallam Stevens, excuse me, to talk about Singapore a little bit on a recent episode with Yansel Kang. Take us inside this study. Um, you started to tell us why you chose those countries, maybe some early findings. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I do comparative research, as you mentioned earlier. And so I always am interested in the comparative lens. I think a lot about how political culture shapes um, not just science and technology policies, but also scientific and technological development. And, you know, in the early days of sort of March, early March, early to mid-March, I was thinking about this. And of course, that was the moment when we were hearing lots of positive stories about both Singapore and South Korea. And we were, you know, kind of already in our um, season of many seasons of discontent. And so I um, decided to look at Singapore and, and South Korea. I have um, a close colleague in, in um, Singapore, Monami Badra Haynes, who um, said that she would do some of the research on um, in, in Singapore. And um, we, and I was also interested because so much scholarship in science and technology studies is very, especially around kind of these questions, is focused on the U.S. and Europe and the West. And my and my own um, scholarship, sort of, it, it, you know, has that flaw as well. And so I thought, you know, this is an opportunity to 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 look at Asia. And so, so I did that. And I had done research in the U.S. and the U.K. before, so which is why I chose those two places. What's interesting is that um, over time, my questions change. So I guess that's. That's, in my opinion, I think, or my approach, usually that's a good thing. Uh, it means that I'm sort of trying to follow the, the data a little bit. Initially, I was interested in how political culture shapes the development, implementation, and governance of, of diagnostic testing. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of things. One is that, uh, you know, the, the extent to which... Um, the countries were uh, prepared and uh, thinking about diagnostic testing very dramatically. South Korea was thinking about it long before, you know, they had established relationships with the private sector. They had a, an infrastructure ready to go. Mm -hmm. As soon as they had the, uh, the gene sequence, Singapore not, soon, not that soon afterwards. Um, and, the U.S. and the U.K. were were pretty far behind. We we simply don't have, um, didn't have the testing infrastructure. Didn't think it was a priority. We didn't have the ability. You know, we I think our traditional approach is to assume that the public health lab infrastructure could handle a pandemic. That assumes that you can control it very early. And 
we had no expansion capability whatsoever. And so that's where the problem arise. That's why we were sort of for many months kind of stuck because we could only, you know, you couldn't go much further beyond the, um, uh, the public health laboratories for the first um, couple of months really. Um, so that was one thing that I thought was, um, that, that is interesting and potentially might have um, some lessons going forward. Can I just and, ask you and, one thing about that before you go into the second part, which is the, um, uh, for Singapore and, and South Korea, how much do you think that had to do with MERS and with yeah. SARS and, and sort of that, that capacity building, or is that not the right way to think about it? No, I do think that that had, I mean, that seems to, at, at very least, and again, this is right, we're, we're still relatively early in trying to figure this out, but that certainly is part of the narrative that they're um, uh, telling themselves. And it is interesting because it, you know, it's not like SARS and MERS, it's not like those are other planets where there's no communication about what happened, right? And this is something right. that I find fascinating and, and maybe we'll tease apart at some point, which is that, you know, we already know from SARS and MERS that there are these coronaviruses. They, that was the trigger behind the diagnostic testing capability. It seems more centrally connected in, I should say, in South Korea than in Singapore. In Singapore, it's more that it was part of this huge uh, biotech push from, mm. you know, that's many decades old and it just happened to be that part of it was around infectious disease, they decided to bet on it. So I don't think it's as um, directly connected to the previous mm -hmm. coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, there's something interesting about the fact that in much of the rest of the world, there was no recognition that they needed to think about diagnostic testing capacity. So much so that very famously, right, that I believe it's the Johns Hopkins Global Health Security Index, right, that famously said that the US and the UK were the most prepared countries, yeah. right? So that obviously people have criticized that for many reasons. It deserves much, much, much more criticism, but it is based not only on, I would say, racist assumptions, but it is also based on skewed understanding and distortions of, of knowledge flows specifically right what we can't actually you know apparently we can't learn anything from anyone else right. uh even if it might save our lives right. <laughs> so um you know i think that's that's deeply obviously problematic i i would like to think that that's so distressing i just i'm just lingering on what you just said there for a second because the implications of that are they're one of, well, there's many options. One is, oh, well, these are small countries and therefore they're not comparable to the US, so we can't learn from that. Or, which this really bothers me, is that that's just a, this, an Asian way of doing this and we're not gonna, and I've heard people, I've heard public officials say that, and of course the president has racialized this from day one. I don't wanna take you off track, but I just put a pin in that because that is deeply distressing narrative. No, I actually was gonna kind of go in this direction, which is, that this idea that, oh, well, those Asian countries, um, you know, something about who they are and, you know, what their characteristics are that, yeah. that makes them better able to manage this pandemic. You know, I think it is, um, you know, obviously it's kind of a shocking statement, but well, maybe just to me, I should say, maybe to you, to us, it's a shocking statement. But I think, 
it should force us to think about what is it about our assumptions about ourselves and the world such that we're saying those things because i'm pretty sure there aren't you know they're not saying those things what narrative are we constructing also about what countries count and what doesn't count so australia is a good example of a country hmm. that is you know um technically in the in the pacific but we consider it a western country right we would say that they're you know australia seems mm -hmm. to be doing just fine germany seems to be doing just fine so you know the the construction of asia has to fit with our assumptions about what asians are like right. um and and i think that it's a it's it's a distraction from uh and I was going to, I'm going to say this as a professor of public policy, it is a distraction from uh, thinking about institutions, laws, policies, mm -hmm. right? If, if, if it's somehow inherent in a society's DNA, then we couldn't have done anything better or differently. And so we just have to, you know, sort of um, hope that our our way is technology, so we will, you know, technology will save us. But we can't, um, you know, we're we're um, uh, um, never going to be like those countries. They're not, you know, not remotely comparable. Which if, which you know means that we uh, lose a lot of potential solutions. You know, it's, it strikes me, I mean, there's two sides of this too, which is that not only do we have the picture of some of these Asian countries that we want to have, in this case, the we is the policymakers who are interpreting this for us, but that also, and you wrote about this as well this year in a piece um, that you published um, earlier this year in democratic theory called Innovation Policy, Structural Inequality and COVID-19. We also, according, um, to your argument in this piece, which I find compelling, we also have a wrong sense of ourselves, of what the United States is capable of, particularly. And maybe this is, I always wonder about this, if it's sort of the long tail of the Manhattan Project notion, and we hear that all the time. You know, All we have to do is amp up the innovation machine, put those scientists in a room, pour some money in the window, and we're gonna be fine. But as you point out in that piece, we have some flawed assumptions, particularly when it comes to allied health sciences epidemiology um, and pharmaceuticals, we have some flawed assumptions about what we're capable of and who, who's gonna benefit by that. I, can you say a little bit more about that? Because this gets back to our notion of um, the COVID-19 phenomena as a producer of inequality in the United States, not just revealing it, but actually producing it. Yeah, I, so that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think, you know, I, I, as I said, much of my work has been focused on the sort of health innovation. And so I want to think more about how it works in other domains. But, but certainly, I would say back from the Manhattan Project and the origins of US science and technology policy, we tend to uh, adopt a trickle down innovation approach, right? So um, we push, we give lots of research funding, we let scientists decide what, what their priorities are, we assume scientists' priorities are public priorities, we encourage intellectual property protection, um, also assuming that private sector priorities are public sector priorities, um, and we think everybody's, you know, mad, the magic happens, then, then, and then magic happens. Um, and 
you know, it's not only that magic doesn't happen, um, that the magic never gets to a lot of people that need it, but that there, you know, the fact that we, our systems are, are, I should say our innovation is determined by, um, uh, a handful of uh, scientists at a handful of universities who are not demographically diverse um, reflects their priorities, right? So if it reflects their priorities, then, um, you know, and, and their biases and their values, then it's not clear that um, that the public's priorities are are really reflected. And we've seen a number of cases where technologies actually are problematic either for people of color or for for you know low-income people right um you know virginia eubanks who wrote this uh, wonderful book automating inequality talks about uh trickle up innovation and there what she's saying is that basically um you know it's the worst innovation <laughs> trickles up you know so they're so marginalized people end up being, you know, providing, being the um, experimental subjects of the most problematic innovation. They're rarely those that get access to the best um, uh, innovation, and they sometimes never get access to the best innovation. She, you know, I'm sort of putting, I'm saying the latter, she said the former, and I'm sort of putting them together. But in a, in a deeply privatized approach to innovation, like the one that not only that we have in the US, but that we have exported all over the place, it, it really privileges that approach and an idea that the purpose of innovation is to grow the economy at, and with, with magic assumed to be the relationship between innovation and society. And so in the biomedical space, that's deeply problematic because you end up either with, um, you know, as I talked about in the, um, uh, in the nature piece, you know, technologies that ha that are, you know, sort of racially biased in certain ways, or people don't get access to essential medicines, all of these problems emerge because basic questions around equity and justice are not, um, are not considered in the early stages of the innovation process. So one of the arguments you make in that, in that piece is that there's a disparity built into the research funding stream around health inequality. And I wonder, I mean, is, is this sort of like the fact that the CDC doesn't study um, guns as a, as a factor of health? I mean, what are we talking about here when we, when we talk about health inequalities as literally not in the research stream? Yeah, I mean, so there has historically been almost no research funding available for health disparities. Um, there's, you know, many hundreds of times more funding, for example, for genetics and, um, you know, for genetics research. And, and that both reflects and reinforces, as you were suggesting before, it reflects and reinforces scholarly inquiry. And so then it's not surprising that you have researchers over the last few months you know, the say, publishing articles that say, hey, maybe there's a genetic reason why mm -hmm. um, low in, you know, lower income marginalized communities of color are getting access to, are, are right. dying more of COVID-19. It's, 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 and then every, you know, and then people have to, you know, then there's a whole response and everybody has to, no, no, you don't, you know, but it's because they, there's a whole funding infrastructure, um, uh, knowledge infrastructure, 
behind the fact that that's how they see problems, right? So they see it through genetic etiology. They don't know to see it through health disparities or socioeconomic determinants of health because they're not learning that stuff. Um, right. We are not teaching it. There are no incentives to do that kind of research. Um, and there are not, you know, the same kinds of you think about the in the National Institutes of Health, for example, you have these institutes, right? Um, allergy and infectious disease, human genome research, um, mental health, et cetera. You don't have one on um, uh, health disparities, socioeconomic determinants of health, health and society, none of that stuff, mm -hmm. even though um, that's clearly um, important, you know, and that also has to do, you know, that has to do, I think, um, it's not just about individual scientists. It's also about social biases and scientific biases against certain kinds of knowledge production, right? We want to quantify and, right. and um, things. We want to study them in the lab. We don't necessarily want to, um, you know, do interviews or ethnographic observation. And, you know, that all of that is part of the mix here. Yeah, I think, and that's just to linger on that for a second, it's really powerful because the, the real downside of that is that I don't think researchers go into the biomedical space of ill will by any means. They go in to save lives, but we're asking them to be scientists, but then also to ask them to be sociologists and historians simultaneously. Um, we need to do a better job. This is just public service for STS. We need to do a better job of articulating um, our indispensable role that the knowledge like the, your books um, should play at this moment. I have colleagues in the public health school. I'm sure you do too here at Drexel. Um, Sherelle Barber comes to mind. I've talked to her on COVID calls. I mean, she is one of these people who's doing it all, but she doesn't sleep. I mean, I, you know, their capacity to do that kind of work is, it's, I don't know if the center can hold. We're putting so much on those researchers to do both the quantifiable and the qualitative. Um, yes. I don't know what the answer to that is. I, well, I mean, so first of all, amen. Um, you know, so you you probably know that I co-host this podcast with Jack Stilgo, The Received Wisdom. And one of the reasons why we started that was for this exact reason is that mm -hmm. we think that there are there's all of this STS knowledge and thinking in the world and and you know, more people need to take advantage and um of that. But but you know, and I have a lot of close colleagues here in the School of Public Health or others and um, you know, even in the School of Public Policy, my colleague Paula Lands, who also does this sort of work. And, um, you know, it is about, we need systemic change. We need, you right, you can't have, um, um, you have to have incentives in the university. You have to hire these people. You have to um, uh, not just sort of be content to go back. You know, I mean, I think to link it to where we started, Part of the challenge here is that um, this is, we are trying, what I think we're implicitly trying to say is that there is no techno fix, right? And that's lucrative. And, and, and the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's simple, it's elegant, right? Scientists often like, scientists and engineers love elegant solutions, right? There's a, there's a, that, that's something that they um, yearn for, but certainly my university, and I'm sure this is true at Drexel too, the lucrative nature of the techno fix is also an important part of the story, which is that, you know, there there is not a lot of um, interest 
in saying, hey, wait a second, you have to think about the implications, you have to think about the social dimensions, mm -hmm. the ethical dimensions, whatever it is, they, you know, they want you to patent that test, et cetera, and then sell it. And, and that's where the incentive structures are. And, and at universities, certainly like Michigan, our technology transfer office says that is the public good. Right. So so scientists and engineers who may or may not have any exposure to any of the, you know, sort of sociology or history or, or ethics of any kind, they say, I want to do public good. My department chair, my dean, the vice provost is saying in order to do public good, I got to get my technology out there. I got to scale it. How do I do that? I patent and license it. All right. Here we go. Right. Um, well, let's stay with that part because you're, you know a lot about this. And one of you could just tell us the why doesn't that work? And, and we're thinking about that particularly this year and maybe to bring it back to the to the tests. How has the sort of, you know, if you're saying the sort of general assumption patent and to market is is it's a good it's out there and then competition will drive the price down. So the more patents and the more products that are out there the better make that um, research to market process easy. But now you have the vantage point of other countries that you're bringing to bear on this. So speak to that patent part of it a little bit because that is really sort of sacred territory in the technological space in the US and you have something to say about that. Yeah, so I'll talk about the patent piece and then I'll talk about another case that we, um, from some of our current research and I'll try to anonymize the case a little bit, but I think it's it's instructive, not directly on the patent question, but on the kind of social implications question. Um, so one of the things that's interesting to me about the patent question is um, that it's part of a whole, and this is, you know, obviously I've written about this in the past, but I'm also thinking about this for some um, in the future, which is that, Patents are just a piece or, or an, um, of a broader kind of political economy, I would say, around innovation. And so the assumption is that what your goal is, is to create something that is patentable and not just patentable, but assumed in that patentability is something that's commercializable, it's standardized, it's um, scalable, right? These are all the things that you should endeavor to want. And the problem with that is that invariably the best solutions are not the ones that are scalable, actually. They're the ones that are deeply tied and often um, community driven, right? So there's, there's a fundamental disconnect between um, uh, this kind of scalable innovation and actually achieving community goals. And that is not something that we're um, we're able to to square in any serious way. So so um, you know this is where I think when we think about patents in the context of testing, I mean the patents testing patents have not been a significant issue, significant barrier I think in the U.S. Um, and it I haven't seen it play a significant role in other countries, but I will say this in Singapore and in South Korea. The government has such a close relationship with industry and is driving a lot of industrial priorities. It has made me think about how the kind of perceived separation in the US actually makes things worse because 
the, it yeah. ends up weakening the government and public priorities and allowing only private priorities to flourish. Mm -hmm. And then universities, for example, are then beholden to an ethos where they think that they're achieving public good through um, um, a private orientation, um, a privatized orientation. But the other thing, I'll, I'll just give you this example that I think is instructive. So there's a university that developed um, a test, like many universities, and um, people involved in that test, in developing that test, um, want to make sure that, that it is widely available um, to you know, needy communities, communities that have a specific need um, for tests. And this is how, um, and, and basically they say, listen, this is, we are engaged in equity work because we are really trying to get these communities to, um, to use our tests, right? And our tests are relatively low cost. And, but those communities, those communities that have been identified by these, um, you know, these test developers as needy, a lot of them don't want the test. And this is a puzzle, right? Um, mm -hmm. And 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 you know we're still working this out. This is sort of hot off the press kind of research. Yeah. That my research yeah. assistant and I were talking about, and and I thought you know and and to us we thought well yeah because to that because to the community itself the test is more than a test. It's a whole social system. It requires all of this kind of policy, practice, right. activity, norms. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, a testing system that would be feasible for this community that's a relatively under-resourced community um, would have to look a particular way that the that the innovator doesn't know but doesn't know that they need to know right because mm -hmm. they kind of say I built the, but I built this innovation and I have good intentions right you know like why aren't so you taking my great invention and I have seen that sort of thing so many times in my in my career now it's fascinating yeah. um you know and that disconnect is what um i would like to figure out ways to address because i because i do think so frequently the innovators are coming from the right place they do want to make social change they care about equity and justice questions but they but they don't necessarily know to think that you know, the, um, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I just what that's so fascinating because, you know, there are some, in some countries they have, have tried to achieve a sort of universal testing at a couple of different moments, but in the United States, we haven't obviously haven't done that. So I, you know, I don't know anything more than what you've just described, but I could imagine in this community you've just been describing, it ties back to something you were describing, discussing earlier, which is like, well, why are, why is our community been selected for surveillance? In other words, rather than seeing it as a way to keep the community healthy, which undoubtedly is probably what the researchers set out to do, um, it's experienced in a different way. Well, if other people are not receiving this, why not? And so in the absence of a national strategy, you have all of these different cultural pockets in which these kinds of very complicated nuances and relationships around the technology must be playing out in real time.
And I would add to that, it isn't, it's, that's absolutely going on is my, my, my guess. But in addition to that, I think it's so important to remember that in a lot of the countries where we're talking about national strategies, and I know that you've talked to a lot of these folks, I know just last week, um, or a couple of days ago, they all the days run together. Um, you, were, you know, you <laughs> were talking, talk to, to? Is, is, um, you know, talking about the Scandinavian approaches, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in so many of these places, the question isn't, I mean, this goes back to the, we can't tech our way out of this. The, there's something that happens after the test, right? right? Like if someone has to stay home or yeah. they have to isolate, where are they yeah. gonna do that? Can Absolutely. they actually isolate? Can they stay home? They what happens if they lose their job? Have... What happens yeah. if they lose their Absolutely. daily wages, right? Yeah. So those kinds of questions, when we have privatized our approach and we're like, hey, hey, I got a test, yeah. you want a test? Like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the sort of communities are like, well, you can give us the test, but, but what are we supposed to do then? Mm -hmm. Right. It's going to, you know, we've heard over the months about how one of the great concerns in some of these lower resource school districts is that they worry that if kids aren't coming to school, then they are not being fed. They are subject to much more abuse. Right. So do right. they want to have access to more testing that would make it more difficult for kids to come to school? Right. Those are the kinds of questions that, you know, we haven't thought about. Instead, we're like, oh, yeah, no more tests. Right. And that's, I think, you know, mm -hmm. to go back to where we started on some level, um, I, I hope that we can learn from this and be at least maybe learn from this as 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 uh, publicly engaged scholars, let's say, mm -hmm. so that we can um, pressure put pressure um, uh, to thinking about these things. I don't know if policymakers themselves will, um, but. But it's one of the biggest lessons that I feel like I've learned from all of this. We're almost up on time. And I still I'm very greedily I want your perspective on a few more things. So maybe we, okay. I can just get a you quick hit. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the spectrum of options for tests is sort of mind boggling. And I don't want you to go through each one of them. But how, have you, how do you catalog them? Like, how have you gone about building out the typology of what tests are? And I was thinking of this just because... I think I sent you this link that in Latvia, they have a, like a vending machine tests now. I think that's not the only place. Is everything from that to still the unattainable test, the, the test you dream of as described in the United States, which in a lot of places people still can't get them. So everything from ultimate availability to unavailable and then the many types in between. How are you building out this? So I think that the, there are three basic categories of tests. Uh, the first is the PCR test. That's the one that's the most common. And it is um, uh, usually that's the one that involves a gigantic swab and, pain, and is painful. Um, it's the most accurate, but it is generally not um, uh, as, uh, it, it takes more time. It's not as quick. Okay. The second major category are antigen tests. Um, and so the famous, the Abbott ID now is a, is a good example, the one they use at the White House. Um, it, it is less accurate, but it is quicker. So you're trading off um, for that. Um, those are the test. two main categories of tests. Then the third is the, this is the holy, you know, the holy grail is the antibody test. Um, it has very poor reliability. It exists in some places, but by and large, you know, the, it, it, it's sort of 50 to 60% reliability. I mean, so, you know, I would never suggest anybody take that, but, it, but it is the Holy grail in the sense that, or it was, I guess, before, 
it still is in the sense that you would then know you could have a, some sort of passport that you said, oh, I've had COVID, mm -hmm. I'm not going to get it again because I have the antibodies. So those are the three major categories, I would say, if you focus on the question of um, that I think are the key questions, which is speed and reliability of the tests. Right. And then, of course, you have for each of those categories, you'll have saliva tests, um, you know, at home tests versus not at home tests, all of that, you know, variation. But for me, that sort of whenever I get confused because there are a billion, yeah. um, I go back to that basic. Um, I need a graphic that I, that I could keep up to help me keep track of these. Um, and I get, I wanted to ask you also, I mean, this has been such a strange year in so many ways. We don't usually hear the president of the United States making sort of STS news every day. Um, but, you know, the fact that he has talked about testing incessantly, I guess I just want to, like, what do you do when he comes out again? And he said this so many times over the summer. Oh, testing, we shouldn't test because test reveals more cases. And, and I would hear that and I would, every time I heard it, I would stop wherever I was. And I thought, how is this message being? And of course, people are repeating it. It caught on to a certain, you know, group of the population. We don't really have time for you to unpack all of that, but I guess I'm just sort of curious what you thought of that. It's coming from the White House. I mean, you know, there's a line from the Princess Bride, I think, I do not think it means what you think it means, uh, <laughs> right. which, is, right. which is basically right. every time I heard that, I'd be I like... I just watched that a couple of months ago with my kids. <laughs> right on. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that's basically my... Every time I hear that, I, you know, I'm like... <laughs> I mean, kind of, sort of, but no, you're just wrong, dude. <laughs> I mean, it's a, you know, I, I don't, some people obviously are, are um, listening to him and every word, which is deeply distressing and his, um, uh, you know, racism, especially around the virus has been dangerous for people. Um, but, um, but I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he leaves me speechless is what I have to say. I don't, I don't know that there is, I don't know that there's really a place to start. And I don't know that I'm thankful that I won't, uh, that pretty soon I, I won't have to anymore. I hope maybe. Probably so. <laughs> thanks, thanks to your state for that. Um, well, I want to just uh, once again under, underscore, absolutely, um, <laughs> the study understanding the comparative politics of COVID-19 testing, Shobita Parthasarathy, and the other work that you've been doing this year. And I really hope that I can get you back maybe with some members of your research team next year when fair. you've got some more of the work um, for us to hear about, because obviously we're only in the middle of this disaster. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. It was fun. Just just a reminder to everybody, you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And stay healthy, everybody. Thanks again to Shobita. We'll see you all on Monday. Thanks. <laughs>